This spooky season, what is scarier than real-world evil? Imagine that Nazis are hiding in a prison mine where they try to torture their victims. That is, until a mysterious enemy in the dark forest rises up to destroy them with zombie-like plant creatures, a granite face, and supernatural symbols. Pastor and paranormal novelist Mark Schooley, author of Koenig's Fire, joins us to explore the problem of evil versus the amazing grace of our sovereign God. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the correctly pronouncing podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm Steamer Burnett, not only the publisher of Lorehaven, but also the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. This is episode 184, How Can Noble Dark Horror Explore the Problem of Evil? As you may know, if you've listened to this podcast, we are hosting a book quest for an older novel called Koenig's Fire in the Lorehaven Guild, our castle in the cloud on Discord. You'll notice that I have now fixed the pronunciation of the novel title. I think all along I was doing the homeschool pronunciation of the title, but it turns out Brendan Church knew a little German and uh, got to let me know that it is pronounced Koenig's Fire. So now that I've made that correction, I'm going to move on to some more serious matters. It is providential. Uh, that we are recording an episode about the problem of evil, planned, by the way, weeks in advance, uh, on a week when a lot of us are thinking more overtly about this problem. Why? Because we are now, as of this recording date, Friday the 13th, by the way, another irony there, as of now, we are seeing the problem of evil enacted in real time uh, in the uh, terrible events in the Middle East. Uh, Of course, our thoughts and prayers, actual prayers, Uh, go out to the victims of the terrible attacks by terrorists on the innocent, Uh, whatever way you shake it with the politics or who did what to whom first. uh, There are certainly innocents being slaughtered over there for no reason other than evil. That leads us to consider what in the world is their problem? Why do we have evil in the world? Why does a good God allow it? What could possibly be a divine reason for all these people who are being murdered in ways that I won't describe If you need the descriptions, you know where to get them. Other podcasts, other social platforms. We're going to talk about the theology behind this and the fiction that helps us understand the theology behind this. I would say, though, uh, that we would have been talking about this anyway at about this time uh, because, as I mentioned, it is spooky season. Uh, Lots of people are thinking about creepy things, horrors, uh, ghouls, paranormal stuff. And, of course, there's that whole Halloween controversy at the back of this. Not long ago, I was driving past one of those lawns that had all of these uh, giant decorations all over the place, at least the United States. Uh, The trend now is uh, Nephilim-sized skeletal creatures or werewolves. Uh, They're always nine feet tall, dressed up like a a Philistine who's actually dressed down, actually. uh, Nothing but uh, bones, not even skin. I'm not sure who decided Nephilim skeletons were going to be the next thing, but they are. But this house didn't have those. This house had a bunch of psycho killer clowns at least two of these clowns were shown doing something that also I don't want to mention on a podcast. It literally made me stop and stare and then turn away because this was a mockery of torture. It was not taking it seriously. Uh, it was making me look and not for a good reason. Why? Why in the world would I object to a Halloween decoration when I'm supposed to be a Christian who's passed all that legalism, right? Well, save my answer for later on in the show as we get to Mark Schooley and talk about the problem of evil and what it's like to need to look away, but to uh, look sometimes just full-on look for the best reasons. First off, though, we have a top sponsor for this episode. Uh, It is returning champion Oasis Family Media. 
with Enclave Publishing's new novel just released called The Mermaid's Tale by L.E. Richmond. Lachlan Adair has never fit in. The legs that she inherited as a result of her great-great-grandmother's curse make it impossible for her to belong under the sea. When her niece is also born without a tail, Lachlan is determined to save her from similar rejection by sending her to school in the only place in the undersea realm where legs are acceptable, the lost island of Atlantis. Enclave Escape presents The Mermaid's Tale, Chronicles of the Undersea Realm, Book 1 by L.E. Richmond, an exciting young adult adventure. It went on sale October 10th, and it's now available wherever great YA books are sold. You can get the hardcover or audiobook streaming. Both of those links are in our show notes for episode 184, or go for all the sponsors in this episode to the link lorehaman.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, I am hungry for some seafood and hungry for some concessions. So let's stop by our ever popular concession stand where we set up some expectations for this episode. And then hopefully uh, you don't uh, need to send a letter saying you didn't talk about this. You didn't talk about that uh, on other episodes that we've talked about, for example, the broader subject of horror. Uh, why Christians, as uh, Zach said in our last episode last year, effectively need horror of some kind. And that doesn't mean we uh, defend every story that is called horror. There's some nasty movies out there that exist just for the wrong kind. Uh, but we do want to define this biblically. The Bible itself not only contains horror, but to some extent, God himself thinks that we need to see some scary things. We need to see some consequences so that we become aware of what it's like to live a life in a world apart from God's light. Uh, but however, we do explore that topic more about the genre in other episodes. We'll probably have those linked to the show notes. And then, as I mentioned, uh, it is Friday the 13th as we record. So we are obviously tempting fate. Woo. So spooky. I think the lights are flickering uh, even now as I sit here speaking to you. Uh, it's a portent of doom. So if you want some of that atmosphere just for a little pinch of fun, I think I'll allow it. But this will be a more serious episode. And this episode is kind of like reality these days. Uh, we're going to cover some more uh, dark subject matter. It is spooky season. It seems appropriate. Uh, but even if this took place in the summer, I think that a problem of evil episode would have been perfect uh, for all of the uh, real world horrors uh, that we're seeing in the world. Uh, by the way, our call uh, to see evil for what it is for appropriate godly reasons, uh, putting that call into practice may look different for people at different times. Uh, I want to encourage you that we're not just telling you to look at something horrible or scary uh, when you may need something else, maybe even a distraction from the real world sufferings that you're undergoing. Sometimes you do need happier stories. You need a story about a mermaid under a sea. Uh, you need whimsy. You need nostalgia. You may even need to just pull up your phone and play a game. Uh, to distract yourself sometimes within reason. I just want to uh, make that very clear before we proceed. We're not doing the whole edgelord, you need darkness all the time so you know how dark it is. Like, I resent that kind of idea. That's not the world God gave us. That's not even realistic. He's also given us light and uh, fluffier stories on purpose. But at other times, you do need to confront evil. You do need to open your eyes. You need to look it in the face, either in the real world and or in fiction. Uh, so that you can understand just exactly how terrible and broken we ourselves and the world has become apart from Christ. It's almost like looking at God's law. You can't skip to the grace parts unless you understand exactly what sin cost us, separation from our God, whom we need. Uh, that's what this book we're going to talk about today explores, Koenig's Fire, and that's what its author is going to help us explore in depth as he arrives in the studio, I think, riding on the back of a famous horse called Rosinante. 
Mark Schooley is a Texan, a Christian philosopher, theologian, and pastor of the Five Solas Church in League City, Texas. And as if that didn't keep him busy enough, he also has 23 years of experience in the space program for the NASA Johnson Space Center, including work for the James Webb Space Telescope. His fantastical novels include The Dark Man, Koenig's Fire, and Night Riders. Mark, thank you so much for writing into the studio. It's great to finally meet you uh, face-to-face. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, Friday afternoon, problem of evil. What could go wrong, right? Well, Friday afternoon on Friday the 13th, uh, while people are fighting each other in the Middle East, and there's all kinds of other craziness going on out there, uh, it seemed providential uh, that we in the Lorehaven Guild, our Discord server, uh, had decided, at least I decided as a, um, as a quest guide months ago, that I really wanted to read Koenig's Fire again. We'd done a retro review about this time last year, and I thought, you know, we already did Dracula last year, another very spooky problem of evil type story set in Romania. Uh, let's do it all over again, except with a newer book, uh, which, as I recall, uh, actually won an award uh, back in 2011. I believe it was the ACFW Carol Awards. Do I recall rightly? Carol Award. I'm still very, very thankful for that award and, and all that they did for me on that. And then it was subsequently nominated for a Christie, which was a lot of fun as well. That's wonderful. And I think rightly deserved. Uh, Koenig's Fire is one of those books that kept me up late when I first read it. Uh, I had to turn on the nightlight and then uh, try to stay quiet uh, beside my sleeping wife because I had to get to the finale, which of course here I will not spoil, but I'm guessing a uh, late disclaimer here. There may be a few spoilers about the story. But we're going to talk mainly about the themes behind the story, starting with chapter one. Uh, it's a problem uh, that is actually laid out in classic form in the opening pages of Koenig's Fire. Chapter one, I've called What is the Problem of Evil? We're just going to define that here. And if you don't mind, O oh, author, I will read directly from pages 21 through 22 of the book. If God is willing to prevent evil, but is not able to, then he is non-omnipotent. If he is able but not willing, then he is malevolent. If he is both able and willing, then whence cometh evil? If he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? Uh, that's what Koenig is thinking to himself, uh, as I believe I recognize the wording there uh, from the formulation of the problem of evil by an 18th century writer named David Hume, who goes on to say uh, in a book published, or actually written in 1776, but apparently published later, in Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, he says, Why is there any misery at all in the world? Not by chance, surely. From some cause, then. Is it from the intention of the deity? But he is perfectly benevolent. Is it contrary to his intention? But he is almighty. Nothing can shake the solidity of this reasoning, so short, so clear, so decisive. Mark, that seems to me to be what they call a steel man version of the problem of evil. I'm curious what led you to try to write a novel about this extremely popular the uh, theological and philosophical paradigm. And what are the origins of Koenig's fire? You'd already written The Dark Man, like, so back in what, the late 2000s? Like, what led you to be so interested in, uh, in this kind of story, tackling this problem? Well, I, I wrote my master's thesis on the problem of evil. I've always been interested in it. It has always called to me in certain ways, and I've uh, just worked through it constantly. And in all of my fiction, it just blends in there. And Koenig's Fire was, there's the Texas pronunciation of it, by the okay, way. Okay, see, I was doing the Texas pronunciation <laughs> earlier. Koenig's Fire, y'all. The only thing, the only word I can pronounce right is y'all and fixin'. So other than that, you just have to bear with me. But 
The problem of evil's always been on my mind. I want to pause a second and commend you. My pastoral instincts are coming out for saying the phrase actual prayers. I think I know what that means. And there's a lot of Christianese out there where we say, yeah, I'll pray for you. And we don't do it. And I think it's a terrible and horrible sin. So to say actual prayers, like we are actually praying for things and not giving it lip service. But that aside, thank you for that, for saying it that way. But the problem of evil, this in uh, Koenig's fire, that original formulation is an ancient formulation. It's probably close to 2,500 years old now from Epicurus, I think. Maybe it's not quite that old, but it's, but it's very ancient. And David Hume certainly takes the ball and runs with it for the skeptical world and formulated a lot of challenging philosophy for the problem of evil. And I think in this particular quote, he doesn't quite go far enough. So I'm going to try to beef it up for him a little bit because he says, not by chance, but he could also say not by necessity also, as if evil philosophically is necessary that it's required that any world that could possibly be would have it and that's a very hindu way to see the problem of evil to say it's as if it's part of god himself this impersonal god that is all that is but it's not by chance it's not random and it's not by necessity so then we would agree with him that there's a cause for it Okay. And also, as you mentioned, being a Calvinist and, and on board with the sovereignty of God, that in some sense, the intention of the de- deity would be that evil will be here, that it's in his decrees, right? Which in some ways sets Reformed theology apart from other theologies. So I think in, um, in Hume's formulation, of this argument where he says it's so short, so clear, and so decisive, we think he's absolutely wrong. And the seeds of that wrongness are right in his words here, I believe. Because if it is um, if it is by chance, which he denies, then it's random, right? But that bleeds over into the causation because he will want to say that it can't be from a cause that is divine, that is all-knowing and omnipotent and all-benevolent, but that leads him with atoms, right? That leaves him with energy. That leaves him with impersonal, non-thinking things. And that destroys his argument because his whole point is that these things are evil and that all of us intuitively know they're bad and that they're real evil and not just bad things that say relatively advanced primates are doing to each other or that dogs are doing to each other or that hurricanes and non-thinking atoms, things without souls and wills and spirits are doing to each other, but there's something really evil in the world. But that undercuts his whole argument. It would the absence of a deity. So. Now, now you mark. Uh, you, you mentioned Calvinism earlier. You know, some people may blanch at that term. Uh, just a, a late concession here, very tasty one. 
is that this is a nickname for a particular Christian theological system. Very classic, very grounded, not at all heretical. It's simply a way of looking at the Bible and trying to figure out why does God do what he does? Why does he allow the problem of evil, a problem that every Christian from any theological tradition uh, needs to wrestle with? And you have to answer the question somehow, well, God allows a problem of evil because he wants something that he believes, being God, he's absolutely right, uh, is greater and worthwhile, uh, the evil and the suffering that takes place. And the question, uh, that that is the question, and Christians must come up with some kind of an answer to that. Uh, my thought there is that you've got to look somewhere for that answer. Are you going to look to logic? Are you going to look to emotional appeal, which is very hard not to look to if you're right in the middle of evil and suffering? Are you going to look to philosophy? Are you going to look to other religions like uh, Buddhism or more Eastern understanding of the yin and yang? The light and the darkness are always intertwined. You even get a little of that in Star Wars and Avatar, The Last Airbender, even while they're cheating. They're, they're saying that it's all in balance uh, when they actually believe that there are good guys who need to win decisively and that the dark side of the force is bad. Uh, no, uh, the consistent Christian needs to look to Scripture. Uh, oddly enough, uh, you being a Calvinist uh, seem to be saying uh, to David Hume back there in the 18th century, hey, what about free will? Uh, which is uh, kind of a fun irony there because you're right. He is speaking in uh, these fragmented terms, like uh, these very passive language. Some of that may be just an, an antiquated language there of the time, but why is there any misery at all in this world? Well, who is suffering the misery? As an editor, I, I look at this and I say, what's the subject? Why are we talking about abstracts like this? Uh, and I think you pick up on that as well. The only person he is alluding to here is the deity. Uh, the only uh, uh, being with a conscious will. And yet, uh, however Christians debate it, like God has also made a universe with other people with other conscious will and the ability to make decisions. You know, I would look at that, I think, with you and say, well, God is still the most free agent of all. So we still have to answer that question as best we can. But humans do have the ability to make choices and choices do bring consequences. And sometimes the consequences are war. I think in the in the cosmic sense, the consequences from human evil uh, become what we might call natural evil, which is hurricanes and earthquakes and disasters, you know, things that fall because of gravity and hurt people. Like that's not always a direct uh, human result, but it is cosmologically or metaphysically like sin has entered the world in Genesis three and these bad things happen and we are now subject to suffering and death. We are mortal. Lots of people have uh, talked about this, uh, not just uh, you with Koenig's Fire, uh, not just David Hume, uh, but believe it or not, the DC supervillain Lex Luthor formulated this. And out of nowhere, I'm a big <laughs> Batman v Superman fan, uh, the extended edition, certainly of 2016. And I didn't know going in that at the end uh, where Lex Luthor's scheme to pit Batman and Superman against each other uh, has been exposed or right before it's going to be exposed, Superman confronts Lex Luthor atop a skyscraper. And Lex is God in this interpretation. He's, uh, he's more like a, um, a new media tycoon. Uh, Lex Corp uh, seems to be like a, a social media or some kind of a big tech platform. And Lex has daddy issues. And he has found refuge in those, uh, in those issues he has with his father and just other megalomania and narcissism. He has found refuge in philosophical quandaries. So he's like messing around and being weird. And he looks up at Superman and he says, if God is all powerful, then he cannot be all good. And if he is all good, he cannot be all powerful. And then he turns to Superman who has come to be in this interpretation, 
uh, unfairly, the representative of of a god, you know, of a perfect hero, even though he has the has the soul of a man. Lex Luthor turns to him and says, "You know, your sin is existing." So Lex Luthor is projecting onto Superman this ideal of a god, and then now projecting his hatred on God. Because why would this all powerful being then flying in front of him? Uh, allow this suffering in the world and it's all excuses you know that's what villains do they will take even a legitimate philosophical inquiry like this and uh, and use it to excuse their evil uh, but better philosophers you know have honestly reckoned with this even the wisest minds uh, are um, uh, curious about the answer to this and i'm sure it's personal too and then storytellers also remind us though uh, that everyone confronts this in everyday suffering I'm curious, Mark, then what led you to uh, explore this problem yourself uh, in, a, in a historical setting, uh, kind of framed by a, a possible dystopian future, by the way, uh, the historical setting or presumably in the 40s uh, in, this, uh, in this remote prison mine, uh, blending now some magical realism along with the paranormal fantasy. Uh, and then the, uh, the now I dare you to say this in your Texas accent, the German phrase for plant men. <laughs> uh, these creatures who are attacking the mind, even while the Nazis are attacking human nature inside the mind. How do you, Mark, say Pflanzenkrieggerin? I don't. <laughs> okay, it just I, it, I, it looks I really don't. awesome on the page. It's very German. Yes, sir. That's a Jeff Kirkyism. I have to um, say. Oh, okay. He, he really helped OG. in the editing okay. on that, and um, I got some help um, from Kathy Lynn as well. This is just kind of an Easter egg. These guys started out as kind of broccoli men, and I heard, no, 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 no. They can't. They have to be a lot more menacing than that. They need Hawthorne uh, nails, and the fly and, traps, and, and the and melon the heads, traps, and, yeah. and and a German name because now it sounds like something a mad scientist put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I won't won't exactly. go into the spoilers about where exactly they come from. Mark, what images? you know, horrifying or benign, uh, led you to think, you know, I need to write a problem of evil story about this. Well, everything I write's imbued with it, really. The Dark Man is is about the sin nature, right? Night Riders is about, you know, our apprehension of evil in real time and in history. And this is no different. And I just am always writing about this and I appreciate you saying that light stories need to be told also. And I will tell light stories, and they're really more important than dark stories. But they, even them, they need conflict. And where else do you get conflict but from some form of evil almost? It's at least the most normal kind, right? Some some kind of sin is going on. But I want to jump back a little bit also and, and just address the formal problem of evil first before we get into the story because I've got really good news and that is so I'm a bible guy as well and we you know we named our church five solas and one of those is sola scriptura and it's the sole objective standard for our authority right and what does sola scriptura mean it means the bible alone scripture alone so we appeal to the Bible as the authoritative standard. It is it itself is not the authority. The Bible's not the authority. The Holy Spirit, God, is the authority, but He has revealed an objective standard, an objective authoritative standard to us, and that is Scripture. And that's where we would ultimately go for all of our answers. But there is a good 
logical breakthrough on this 2,500-year-old problem. It's kind of a trade secret in philosophy, I think, that no one ever talks about, and that is that the logical problem of evil has been solved, by and large. The logical problem of evil that there exists a contradiction between the proposition that God exists and the proposition that evil exists, that question really, by and large, acknowledged by um, theists and non-theists alike, really has been solved, I think, through the work of Alvin Plantinga, who has pointed out, to shorten the whole thing, he's pointed out that the burden of proof is too high for the skeptic in this argument to establish that needed premise in there that God does not have morally sufficient reasons to allow evil. The burden of proof there is too high for the skeptic. And so the logical problem of evil really has been abandoned in the last 50 years. This is really a modern development, and it's great news for those that struggle with the problem of evil to know at least that the logical problem has been solved. See? So how this argument has morphed or evolved in recent years is more towards evidential questions or more towards probabilistic questions or, you know, everybody sees the world and sees that there's evil in it and it really devolves kind of into my apprehension of the evidence and my apprehension of the world at large and how I think about it. And that is a much different question when you come to the problem. That's a much different problem, I guess we should say, than the logical problem. So that's a real breakthrough. And so now you start to see appeals to um, gratuitous evil, like God would like some of this evil just can't be explained by a theodicy, right? By an attempt to solve the problem of evil, like free will or soul-making theodicies, right? Um, and that's a very, very different, very, very different problem um, than the logical problem. So that's really good news uh, that, that has happened in our lifetimes. We've kind of seen it in, in real time, at least if you're as old as I am, right? So. It seems to me that, yes, some of the, the logic has already been worked through, and maybe some philosophers may be comfortable with that, but even philosophers have children and have people whom they love uh, and get that surprise diagnosis or have to put down a pet or watch the news and see the terrorism and uh, barbarism and even you know the consequences of natural evil, like a, like a natural disaster, a volcano erupts or an earthquake uh, takes uh, you know thousands of lives in Afghanistan. By the way, there was an earthquake in Afghanistan last week as well. Did you hear about it? Uh, there's so much natural evil going on out there, uh, the consequences of human sin, that we cannot even keep track, even in the social media age. And that is maybe part of the problem, too, is that human beings, as I think has been rightly observed, you know, whether or not we were meant to know about all the stuff going on in the world, our perception of the evil that's going on in the world is magnified because we have so many more ways to see it. Whereas if we are limiting ourselves to our own lives, our loved ones, you know, animals around us, uh, churches, immediate social circles, like the problem, even as terrible as it is, wouldn't be as big as all that. You know, we're getting a little bit, just a, a micron closer than to, you know, that, uh, that 
God scale view of the world. You know, God himself sees all of the evil that's going on all at once and knew about it from eternity. From eternity. Yeah, we will never be able to see all of that, but maybe we feel like we are. And yet we also lack the perspective that God has. And yet, even if we got, you know, a terrible diagnosis or a, a medical bill, you know, just those lower grade to, like you said, gratuitous examples of evil, like even that makes people struggle. Uh, even if we know the logic of it, if we know the verses, we know Romans 8, 28 and 29, uh, we've studied it. Uh, it can still hurt when you're right in the middle of it. And as a result, I think, Mark, people, even, uh, even solid Christians come up with some coping mechanisms uh, for the problem of evil that uh, ultimately prove uh, fruitless. And I do see that at, for example, Halloween, maybe not necessarily Christians putting out the, you know, the psycho clown statues on their lawns. But to me, like I, I now I've, as a kid, I was legalistic about the Halloween decorations and the monsters and the ghouls because it's Halloween and you're not supposed to celebrate it. You're a Christian. This is not that episode, but I do notice though, it seems to be a heart behind some of these decorations, Mark a distancing effect from evil. I'm going to mock these twisted murder pictures. I'm going to parody them. I'm going to laugh at them. Let's put the devil in a red suit. And right. And Let's yeah. dress him up and laugh and pretend yeah. that we've conquered over evil. It's almost a, it's almost a twisted version of the apostle Paul writing that Christ defeated his enemies and made a public spectacle of them. Well, Christ has Love done that. that. It's wonderful. But we can't do that. Well, we, we can if we are Christians, but the non-Christian or, or the Christian who's not thinking biblically about evil, like, does not have the right to mock twisted images of evil and suffering, uh, even insofar as this, this decoration I saw, which was literally portraying the suffering of a child. And it just got to me like, I'm sorry, with all that's going on this week, um, that's just too soon. And I don't think it's ever appropriate. Uh, to mock that. It is an incomplete picture uh, to show people uh, suffering pain without some, like you said, Mark, a, a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope. And we'll go then into what we mean by noble dark in chapter three. Uh, but I just, I really appreciate your perspective on that is that, yes, we do need dark stories about dark men and dark plant creatures and, and dark writers, but we also need light. I don't like horror that does not also promise uh, some reward for the suffering and thereby give me at least a glimpse in my imagination of the reward that God has promised for those who love him. Well, precisely because the whole point of employing the horror is to show the light and to show goodness that overcomes it, correct? It, yes. It's, we don't write um, existential fiction. We don't write meaningless fiction. We don't write nihilistic fiction. We write evil that is there just like it is in the bible mind you where god's goodness overcomes it where the redemptive story overcomes it where man has fallen by his own genuine volition and continues genuinely to will sin but god's redemptive work in human history is such that the darkness flees from the light that light has overcome darkness See, that's that's always the final goal. But the Bible's full of, I was glad to hear you say it. I didn't know coming in how it was going to be, but I was glad to hear you say the literally that the Bible has horror in it. Um, I wrote down kind of a list of some of the horror that's in the Bible. You know, it, it it's 
um, falls and floods and tent pegs and dogs licking up blood and wholesale destruction of cultures and slavery and war and exile and demons and devils and rapes and and kind of culminating in the most horrible act in all of human history, which is the cross. See, the, the most evil that's ever occurred occurred where the most light was, where the love of God shone the strongest, which in the cross of Jesus Christ, where an actual innocent man was tortured, you see, uh, all by the foreknowledge and decree of God, you know, that this great evil happened. So the Bible is full of horror that God will overcome in human history, that God has decreed over, that God sent his one and only son, that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world overcoming even this very day. The, and you really get that with the horror genre like a Koenig's Fire in a way that you don't get in other, in other genres because it's so dark that the light really pierces it. The light really shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, the Bible says. Amen. So it cannot be horror that is unredeemed or that has no light in it, as, as you so well pointed out. Amen. I think that that's uh, that illustrates that uh, desire to cope. Uh, it's a flippancy. Uh, you are embracing yes. the darkness in order to become the darkness. Therefore, you mm -hmm. can't be scared by the darkness. And that is an unbiblical, horrible effect. You are literally trying to make yourself become a monster so the monsters can no longer terrify you. But now right. you're the monster who's terrifying other people. So congratulations. <laughs> uh, you will probably need at that point, unless you turn to Jesus Christ, to go to the place that God has prepared for people who reject him, and that is hell, which is one answer that God has made for the problem of evil. It's a scary one, but we need to talk about that going into our second sponsor, which is Brian Timothy Mitchell with his new novel, Almost Paradise. It's almost released, so get ready for Almost Paradise, the sequel to the award-winning book Infernal Fall. Daniel may have escaped the inferno, but hell has followed him home. The devils that stalk him may not know about his magical stone, which can send them back to hell, but unfortunately for Daniel, there isn't much power in slinging stones. Meanwhile, heartless Charles is torn between saving his friend and serving his master. If that wasn't enough trouble, an alluring spirit has ensnared him with her charms. Then there's Bo, who is ready to catch a bus bound for heaven, but first he must discover why it's harder to fly than to fall. Find out why on Tuesday, October 24th, with the new Brian Timothy Mitchell novel, Almost Paradise, sequel to Infernal Fall. You can get those links in the show notes for this episode or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, Mark, uh, now that we are out of hell and as Christians, we do not need to fear hell, uh, whether or not in a fantastical novel, you actually get to come back from the place. That is one answer, I think, uh, to chapter two. How does God's word answer the problem of evil? I want to talk for a moment about some Christian, you know, legitimate Christian uh, theological explanations for this problem that you and I uh, might uh, disagree with uh, against those other people. I think we're probably going to agree with each other, but I do want to bring up another verse. Uh, I think you alluded to it a moment ago, Isaiah 53, 10, when you're talking about the crucifixion of Christ, the most horrible event described in scripture, uh, Isaiah 53, 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So this is God's will. This was not plan B. This wasn't something that God just foresaw happening in the future and then decided to take some steps to make it happen, thereby resolving the predestination paradox. 
Uh, this was God setting that in motion. Plan A all along, God decided to kill God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, divine team up. That's the Trinity. It's a mystery. They decided, you know what? In order to resolve this whole sin problem uh, and redeem a people for uh, myself, we're going to have the Son be crushed by human beings uh, in yeah, a particular I, time I would, and place. I would kind of like to add um, Acts chapter 2. Um, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Thing. Right. There's okay. both divine responsibility and human responsibility right there uh, in the same text, which ought to at least challenge us if we're assumed to go like too far on one side or too far on the other. Like, don't get the humans off the hook. But it was God who had the idea all along. Surprise, plot twist. I really appreciate you talking about not being afraid to use the words authentic will and genuine will because humans make genuine choices and always have. And every cho the choices we make are real. They're not robotic. They are exactly what we want to do. We choose them with vigor, you know, according to our natures. It's very, very important. And in this, you do see the you know, the concurrence between the divine will and the human will, and both are choosing authentically. They are, and I think some people, uh, you and I actually picked up a little of that in uh, the uh, the 1776 writer, uh, David Hume, uh, just kind of reducing human responsibility there in order to magnify the problem of evil and, and kind of uh, turn that into abstracts. I, I think we may be tempted, even as Christians, to treat human beings as passive actors uh, as if there's some other entity or someone else's choice that makes them suffer when in some cases, not all, but in some cases, you know, our own decisions are bringing some suffering on ourselves. But even if we live righteously and always make good decisions, which would be impossible, but assuming we did, we'd still be living in a world in which other people do not going all the way back to Adam and Eve and the original capital B, capital D bad decision. Though I don't think we'll find a resolution to the problem of evil by reducing uh, the responsibility of human beings. I also don't think, Mark, that we'll find a, a solution there. I mean, you've already found the solution. It's, you know, Jesus, it's the gospel. Uh, but we're not going to evade the problem uh, by resorting to reason. And I think that is one flaw and maybe just a, uh, going back to the philosophical language about this and not going back to the word of God. It makes sense that philosophers would want to figure this out, but then they're borrowing terms from the Bible or from the Judeo-Christian worldview that they can't help. Like going back to Hume's quote, misery in the world, benevolent intention, all of these terms like have moral uh, definitions to them. And maybe he defines them elsewhere in his dialogues concerning natural religion but ultimately, they're groundless. Uh, you cannot say that misery is a bad thing or suffering or evil are bad things without borrowing from a moral code that you get elsewhere. Otherwise, you're just resorting to a consensus that's been assembled from the collective power and cultural uh, assumptions that people have, uh, which can be overturned from generation to generation and therefore don't have any foundation either. You've really put your finger right in the middle of a hot topic, especially in reform circles but it's it's expanded out it's there is a controversy right now between scholastics who would point back to thomas aquinas and aristotelian language and philosophy and the grand great tradition and biblicists who want to say 
Well, yeah, a lot. You have to have logic. How could you understand the Bible without it? Of course, right? But uh, but we're not going to get into philosophy and logic as our primary source of knowledge or figuring these problems out. It has to drive exegetically from the Word of God, and that's what I hear you saying more, taking more of a biblicist line exactly. towards this problem. It just happens to be a very hot topic problem at the moment with lots of squabbling going on online and in certain areas. But I'm certainly with you that Sola Scriptura, we find our final authority on all matters, uh, must comply with what the Bible says on this. It does tell us that by God's revelation that he created a world that was very good, that was free from sin, that was free from evil. First and foremost, we have to remember that God created a garden that was free from not only sin, but the effects of sin, right? You wouldn't have disease. You wouldn't have earthquakes. You wouldn't have starvation and war and all these things. And what happens, right? We ruin it. (laughs) We are the ones that ruin it, right? And that's what has been given to us from God's revelation. So despite the logic of the matters and and all these other things, that's where we start. We start with God created and said it is good. We came along and violated his command and plunged the sin, the world into sin. That's, that's where we start. And we have to start there. If we don't start there, then we're not ultimately, I think, going to be able to start answering the problem of evil. If we're focused just on the present, just on the problem as we see it now, without an eye toward the past and certainly an eye toward the future, uh, we are going to lack uh, an eternal perspective. Uh, We're going to be focused just on our own limited lifespans. And then ultimately, I think that does lead toward nihilism. We're just so focused on ourselves and our own suffering that we don't see other reasons that God may have allowed this, and we certainly aren't open to a biblical view of history. I think that's why it's important, Mark, to study uh, at least the hope of eschatology, maybe not get too badly into the weeds about exactly what happens when, but maybe even more important, you've got to know and appreciate and take as history in some way uh, the Genesis uh, origin accounts. Uh, You alluded to Genesis 3, for example. I mean, there it is right there a meaningful choice that Adam and Eve together made to want to be like God on their own terms, according to the words of the serpent, and then break this seemingly little tiny commandment. And then their eyes are opened. And and we've been talking about uh, opening our eyes to the reality of evil. In this case, their eyes are opened and they did behold the consequences of their sin, the shame that they now felt of being so exposed and vulnerable. This is the first consequences. Uh, There's a vulgar term that gets around. I'll clean up here for a Christian podcast. You mess around, you find out. They messed around and they found out. I almost wish we could say that phrase because it's almost like a little law and consequences encapsulation right there, but they really did. Uh, And then yet God also shows them mercy and promises solutions for this problem of evil even though justifiably he could have withdrawn all divine influence in the world right there, just rushed right out of there to heaven and then let the earth burn and start over. Uh, Obviously God though has a bigger, more wonderful plan in mind, even though it does evolve, uh, involve suffering and pain along the way. To some extent, Mark, one way or another, Christians have to answer in the affirmative that yes, 
God has decided to let us experience evil for his good purpose. We just debate about what that good purpose is. And then uh, the more in-depth theologians will talk about, well, does God cause evil? Like some verses seem to say that, yes, he does. God brings calamity. You know, God brings consequence. I, the Lord, do these things. And then, of course, we read in Isaiah 53 and other texts, like it was the will of God to crush Christ. So he's at least going to cause suffering to himself, as in God the Son. Uh, Why then can we not at least in our heads understand that to some extent God causes other kinds of evil while not being the author of evil? Right. So... Isaiah 45, 7, absolutely. But, you know, the I think the foundational verse on this also is, is Genesis 50, 20, where you have the account of Joseph and his brothers, and you see the divine concurrence in the actions in Joseph's words, where he tells the brothers, you guys meant it for evil. Y'all sold me into slavery, threw me in the, threw me in the well, sold me off to the, Midian, uh, the Midianites and the whole nine yards. Y'all meant it for evil, but God intended it. See, there's there's a clear statement that God has an intent in the evil actions of men, right? It's a clear verse of divine concurrence, um, which is part of God's sovereignty and governance of the universe, right? His, and so you, it's very, very difficult to just say, God creates the world and and steps back from it and has nothing to do with it, therefore, because you want to try to protect his holy name from being involved with bad things. The evil comes from me. You know, it comes from my bad choices and my bad intents. But God's intent and all that comes to pass is good, and he has reasons for ordaining what he has. I I don't think we should, should... flinch back from saying God's in control of this world and every part of this world. I think it's very, very important, and I think the Bible's very, very clear. I raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, that my glory might be shown in him. Pharaoh's actions are evil, but God raised him up for that purpose to show his glory. And I think that is the biblical... Of course, the Bible never argues for God. It doesn't argue for his existence. It doesn't argue to try to um, make sense of the problem of evil. He just tells No, it's an a priori assumption. God exists. Here's why he does what he does. Here's what he did. Here I am, Job. Now you know why you're wrong. And Job says, I repent. And, you know, now that my eyes have seen you, I repent in dust and ashes, right? But what the Bible's communicating is that God is really the answer to the problem of evil that I want to draw attention to it to help build up Christian faith and so that God's people won't be um, doubting because a skeptic come along, comes along and starts pointing out all this evil stuff that's, that we all see. What I would like to point us to, and I think Koenigsfire does a little bit of this, is that it takes kind of a Chestertonian line, you know, a C.S. Lewis line saying that Evil is really the empirically verifiable part about the Christian faith, you know, original sin and such. These things, we observe very clearly evil, right? We observe this in our own lives, with our own eyes, with our ears. And that means that it's real, and that means that it's really evil, and that means that objective moral 
values and duties are true, and therefore God exists. So evil is really a very powerful way to understand that God's really there. See, because if he was not, nothing would be evil. It would just be rocks crashing into each other, see, and well, fires the, burning stuff up. Or Yeah, <laughs> you get the definition no of poison. evil from outside of our world. Uh, you cannot uh, uh, deduce from the world itself, like you can deduce this thing is happening, but the standard itself uh, has to come from somewhere outside. And Christians say, well, that standard is God's word. Uh, only by the definitions in God's word can you even call a bad thing a bad thing, uh, much less understand what to do about it. Yes, sir. But can I also point you to Romans 1 and say, even in general revelation by the things that are created, that no man is without excuse because they can see God's invisible qualities by what he has created. And in this world, it's very easy to see that uh, we also have a conscience that argues some things are really wrong. They're really evil. That's true. That and is true. That points us to the existence of God. Otherwise, everything's meaningless. It's very, very, it's a very, very faith-building exercise in the midst of great evil to see that. Agreed. And yet at the same time, especially now, and not just because of social media and all these uh, cultural forces, it is much, much easier now to come up with a synthetic conscience that will mm -hmm. now uh, smother mm -hmm. the voice of that original conscience and now start to redefine what you view as good and what you view as evil. Scripture has some very stark warnings about that. Woe to them who call good evil and evil good. Uh, Zach and I talked about that in our last episode about supposed book bans. You know, some books do redefine evil so badly that they are actually dangerous. Whether or not you ban them is another issue. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Genesis 50, 20, uh, because I think a lot of our listeners uh, have suffered evil or, or suffered the results of other human sins uh, as a result of some kind of family dysfunction or even church dysfunction. Uh, and yet I found very comforting uh, the words of Joseph, who has now healed from the trauma of being separated from his family, now experienced reconciliation with his brothers and his father. Of course, it also helps being rich and powerful and the number two guy under Pharaoh himself. But Joseph has stuck with God all this time, as faithful as a person can be. And as a result, he's able to have this uh, something approaching an eternal perspective, like God intended this for good, even while you intended this for evil. So both intentions existing simultaneously in the real world, and not just a resolution then to the logic there, but an emotional resolution there. I think a lot of people understand the logic of it, but they need to feel it. They need to have that in their imaginations, and they need to fight to understand what they know. And as a result, we've got books that help and other stories that help, like Koenig's Fire, so let's talk about that in our next chapter. However, I must first stump once again for the Lorehaven Guild, effectively our third sponsor. That is our Castle in the Cloud, our Discord server, in which we undertake monthly book quests through the best Christian-made fantastical stories that we can find. They may be lighter stories, or they may be darker stories, especially in spooky season. And this month's selection is Koenig's Fire. As you listen, we're probably more than halfway done, but it is not too late to jump in if you've somehow managed to find a copy of this out-of-print title. It is out-of-print, so you won't find it right now. And in fact, our readers may have cleaned out the last uh, stocks of the uh, Amazon-used bookshelf. Sorry about that, Mark, but I hope it helps you. That book is amazing, and our readers are really enjoying it. And yet, even if you don't get in in time for the Koenigsfire book quest, we're going to have another one coming up in November 
It is a curated community uh, formed by a biblical worldview, uh, and we have more than 260 heroes in there, and you're the next one. So subscribe free at lorehaven.com. We will send you the invite code for the Lorehaven Guild, and you can join this castle in the cloud. And you, like others, can pursue the topic of our next chapter. Mark, how may noble dark horror help us see the truth? So we've already crossed over into this a little bit uh, in talking about the horror elements of Scripture that are necessary to help us open our eyes and see just exactly how terrible the consequences are for human sin. And I would group uh, noble dark horror along with that. And I, I don't mean, let me describe it real quick, emphasis on noble there. I don't mean slashers, don't mean violence porn. I don't mean psycho clowns that exist just to scare you. And then, wow, you get a, you get a rush from the scare and then that's it. There's no further uh, action to be taken. And I don't mean anything nihilistic. The last time uh, one of us at the, actually at the Lorehaven predecessor site, you remember this one, the Mark, uh, Speculative Faith, uh, we had a writer there, Travis Perry, who wrote about it. And uh, I liked his quote. He said, Noble Dark would be a story in which there are genuine heroes, but the story world is full of terrors and it's gritty. An epic struggle for good and evil is ongoing, but the heroes are holding their own barely. Uh, as I read that quote, I thought, well, that does describe uh, Kurtig's fire. It qualifies, I think, as noble dark, but the darkness serves the light. By the end, there's maybe not a traditional happy ending. And yet by the eternal perspective, the heroes of the story, there are heroes and God ultimately does win. And, and I think, Mark, that this story really helps even in the framing of it, in the style of the story, not just the content, the framing of it helps. Because I will spoil the beginning a little bit. You start out in kind of this, uh, this world. You don't quite know what it is, uh, but Koenig himself is an old man and he's on trial. You don't really know why, but he's being interrogated and the exact details aren't as relevant to the story. But then we now flash back to his experience uh, in the Romanian prison mine uh, during World War II when he's conscripted by the Nazis. And you find out just what happened to him to make him become the person that he is today. I think we flash forward a few more times, uh, but most of the story takes place in the past. I think just that framing mark helps us to think uh, in nonlinear time. There is past, there's present, there is future. And just like we can only answer the problem of evil by appealing to that sense of nonlinear time, that eternal perspective, there is a past, there is an origin for original sin, there is a present, the circumstances in which we find ourselves now as a result. But then there is the future when God will in some way make all things right. And I think it helps to use stories like this one alongside uh, those truths of scripture to, tell, to help us feel that truth, even, even if we're already thinking it. Uh, but we need, for example, Romans 8, 28 and 29. Now people laugh and they write think pieces. And I'm sure that verse has been sprung on a lot of people at funerals when they really didn't need to hear that right now. Thanks. They just needed to go into full on lamentations mode. Jeremiah, grieving over the loss of his city, didn't need to be told Romans 8, 29 through 29. He already knew that, uh, but sometimes he just got to grieve and let the tears roll. But we do need that truth in the back of our heads. So at least we have the logic. We have the biblical theology as a foundation for the grief. Now, one of my favorite authors, uh, Randy Alcorn, he actually wrote a really good book about the problem of evil, too. It's called If God is Good. It's a really fantastic nonfiction book. One of the best points he made is that, yes, you need to study the theology of suffering and why we have it and why God is good anyway and can be trusted. We've got to get that into our heads when things are kind of baseline normal. Maybe we're not suffering so much so that when that time does come, we've already done the homework. 
we already understand the scripture and we have that foundation. And then people don't need to give us Romans 8, 28 through 29. Well, all things work together for good for those who love God are called according to his purpose. Like we already know that it is truth. I don't mean to be flippant about it, right. but you right. don't need to treat it like a greeting card slogan, you know, just some sort of a, a placebo. Hey, you, uh, you know, one, you one, already know one thing I always say is I'm not going to be a cliche Christian and I'm not just going to throw out platitudes. So even as a pastor, I will say that in hard times and say, look, I'm not going to, I'm just going to bear this pain with you right? The pain, because the pain's real. I'm not going to say a bunch of things, you know, oh, it's always darkest before the dawn and all that kind of stuff because they Keep don't. Keep hanging in there, bro. You know, the yeah. kid, motivational poster <laughs> type you. approach. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's why we right. need good theology, Mark, because it, oh. rightly applied, it does help. It, it's not just uh, bashing someone over the head with a book of logical principles. Right. Uh, it contributes to the imagination. It contributes to a right approach to the emotional response when we do grieve yep. and suffer and try to work right. through it. Yeah, so, precisely. Ker- Koenig's fire has specifically helped me do that. And I'm not just saying that because you're here, uh, but because it is, it is an example of a story that helps to, in a sense, bring into pictures what I already know from the scripture. And to say more would be to spoil the ending. Suffice it to say uh, that the book really explores the consequences of a third party that got messed up uh, in man's rebellion against God. So you got God, the first party, human beings, the second party, then there is a third party. And the third party is not too happy about this. And that's what I would say Koenig's Fire is about and illustrated vividly. Uh, with monsters and plant creatures and and the groaning of the forest outside. Once I figured out what was going on, Mark, that's what kept me up late into the night to see if you were actually going to land this thing in the doctrinal direction I thought you were. Yeah, I don't want to present any spoilers here. I mean, perhaps at this point we can say, hey, spoilers upcoming, but I'm I'm kind of sensitive to not spoiling it for, for folks that are reading it. But you're exactly right in your assessment of it. And I would say it's there also on a personal level in dealing with evil because Sasha Koenig is one as the book progresses, he really begins to sense his own evil. He senses his complicity in this whole world of evil, that it's not just somebody else. It is, it is him. And each one of us needs to come to grips with that. I love how at the beginning of this podcast, you talked about we have to have a grasp of what the law condemns us of before we can come to salvation. And that's exactly right. And he begins to see this. I think I use the metaphor from um, Macbeth, you know, with the dagger and the bloody hands, right? And he, they become a symbol for him of what he has done. And he's, he, in a lot of ways, is the good guy here, right? And even he sees the depth of his own uh, guilt in things. And that evil at one point forces him into a choice where it, it's pressing down on him so hard that he says, Lord, I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I cannot do this. And yet he's forced to take that step of faith anyway, see, without giving too much away from any thing of the book that you can see how that God and nature do not work in vain. Everything that is going on around here 
uh, God has a purpose. And even when I can't see it, and he certainly can't see it in the book, right? It He cannot see it. He's got this theoretical idea, or like, as, as you were saying, this theological notion, but the personal experience of it is so much different. The personal experience of it is full of pain, and it is full of the effects of evil, and it's full of the things I bring upon myself, and it's full of the things that I didn't bring upon myself that are all causes, that are all results of evil. And we go through this in our, in our own lives. Okay? Pain hurts, and evil is always evil. We never call it good. You know, it is evil. And, and you can see this character working through. So yes, it is, it is a philosophical treatment of the problem of evil, for sure, as he explains at the end of the book when he comes up with his answers. But it's also our personal apprehension and experience through this evil world, okay? All by the grace of God, of course, you know, for those, for those with faith, all by the grace of God, how he brings us through this, even how he did not spare his own son, right? But subjected him to the to the evils of men as well. So that, yes, there's the theological foundation and it really helps to get the theology right. It really helps to get God right and God's presence in this world because without him, everything's meaningless. It Everything is a chasing of the wind. Everything is without purpose and ultimately to understand evil properly and to act properly within it, you need that foundation. But it's also the personal experience of it, and that is never to be diminished. Don't for a minute, when I'm talking about the logic of the problem of evil, understand me saying that we ought to diminish the personal experience of it, because it's very, very real. I mean, the, God was not kidding when he said evil was evil and that sin has consequences. He was not kidding. He's told us the truth all the way through about evil in this world, which is also not to diminish all the good that's in this world. That's the other problem that the that the skeptic has with the problem of evil is they have to deal with the good. It's the problem of the good. If you have a naturalistic world, how do you explain good? You cannot. See, there's there's all kinds of different ways to come at this problem, and the problem of good is a very, very real thing because not only do we see evil, we see good and good is more powerful and more real than evil is. And goodness exists. I see it. You see it. We all see it. The most hardened skeptic knows that there's good in this world. And that does not come from rocks, my friend. And that does not come from nine volt batteries and energy okay, and the sun and all of that. Okay? There's something good in this world. And it points back to a good creator that created it and sustains it even now, and through the evil of this world brings good, because God and nature do not work in vain. They do not. He has a plan and a decree, and he will see it through even to the sacrificing of his own son in love. Amen, Mark. I think that folks, after hearing that, may want to get some uh, more teaching from you. Uh, you step back from writing, at least for now. Hope you'll get back to it if the, uh, the good Lord, as you mentioned, uh, would grant you some time for it. But in the meantime, uh, where can folks follow your work in ministry even today? 
They can go to markschooley.com and still reach me all that they want. My email address is there. I can be reached there. Um, it's a little, that site's a little outdated, but it's still up and running. And there's actually a lot of things in the works right now. I've got um, three or four books going, some of them pretty well advanced at this point, both fiction and nonfiction. So there's an intent to launch a publishing company along the line as soon as God makes time for it. Well, we just got some breaking news here at the end. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And uh, we seem to have uh, connected once again at a providential time. So even now, even in these little decisions, uh, God is at work. Uh, even in our decisions, he is still uh, the prime mover behind them. And we can only anticipate that more good will come uh, from these little choices, uh, but even through the evil that we're seeing around us. And maybe even the faithful listener, the evil that you're undergoing right now, if you want to reach out to us, by the way, listener, we will actually pray for you. And I might even pass that along uh, to Mark because I still have his email address that he mentioned, uh, and we actually may pray for you. Well, Mark, thank you so much for writing into the studio. I look forward to learning what other stories are going to come from you, dark, light, or whatever. And I just appreciate you uh, upholding not only God's word, but fantastical imagination. So Godspeed to you, brother. Much obliged, my friend, and all the best as God sees fit. It was fantastic to reconnect with Mark Schooley, a uh, creative voice that I had connected with a long time ago. Uh, now you just learned that uh, some of these relationships will just continue for a while, especially if they are centered around these incredible stories. Dark stories, yes, uh, but also stories that help us remember the light that God has shown into the world despite ourselves. That's the point of Lorehaven. Whenever we engage with horror is not horror for its own sake, uh, but for Christ's sake. That's the point of everything we do at lorehaven.com. Let's go over here for a mission update. We've got a lot of new reviews of the best Christian-made fantastical novels that we can find. Our last review as of this episode's release date was a science fiction novel called Moonchild Rising by B. Ward Powers. Very interesting stories there. Our reviewer loved that book. Uh, this week, as you're listening to this episode, if it's on release day, we've got an article coming up. Uh, by Daniel White IV called How the Crucifix Shows Christ's Salvation in Dark Fantastical Stories. Very interesting stuff going into some newer horror or paranormal fiction uh, that sticks a cross up in there. Uh, it's right there on screen sometimes in some seemingly offensive ways, but Daniel has a very intriguing take on how the cross symbol will never be emptied of its power uh, no matter what people do with it. We also have some coming book reviews uh, coming up at uh, Fridays at lorehaven.com. This Friday, we will review A Bond of Briars by Aaron Phillips. And then a week later, Steal Fire from the Gods, a debut fusion-style story, kind of fantasy and robots all put together by Clint Hall. Uh, and then an upcoming Wing Feather Saga expansion called A Ranger's Guide to Glipwood Forest by Andrew Peterson. You will get all those reviews at Lorehaven and any of the articles only by subscribing free. You can then get updates whenever we post the new stuff. You can also join the Lorehaven Guild that we talked about. We will send you that exclusive invitation code, and then you can join our castle in the cloud. You can also send us any notes about uh, this interview. Uh, what do you think about the problem of evil? What do you think about uh, the way that we engaged with it here? Some of the philosophical stuff, a lot of the theological stuff, but most importantly, the plant men shambling around in the forests, uh, seeming to enact the vengeance of God stuff. Email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. Or tag us on the socials. Just look for Lorehaven on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you are looking at the show notes on our website, uh, you can always leave a note there as well. 
or you can share a note in our Discord server, the Lorehaven Guild, like Tom Darrow did. Actually, Tom Darrow's a member there, but he's also a Facebook friend, and he left a really fascinating comment that's at the top of my notifications over here at the comm station. Episode 183 is one that he appreciated. That's the one about the banned books. Yes, you are hearing the scare quotes there. Tom had a lot of good thoughts, so I can't read them all, uh, but here's some excerpts. He says, this podcast does a good job covering the same semantic issue I did here, which is that ban is typically semantic overreach, which is used for marketing rather than meaningful communication. Often the reality is that a book is being restricted from unsupervised access by children below a particular age, and that's in no way a ban. It's also true that some books are genuinely harmful or they advocate for harmful behaviors, but can be read discerningly to critique them by a mature enough reader. It absolutely makes sense to restrict these. Those who say they shouldn't be restricted because we need to break free of oppression and we need children to be exposed to this content, well, they're advocating for a social structure that I think is evil. And they're advocating for indoctrinating children into that social structure. There's a little bit more he says there. Uh, He continues, chapter three as a whole is very good particularly the commentary about how Amazon and others lack the moral proportion to make the decisions they're making about books. And of course, the commentary about how people encouraging the reading of banned books only want to encourage reading banned books from one specific political or cultural angle, not reading controversial books from multiple sides. I never hear banned book people encouraging kids to read the Bible or Ayn Rand. They're trying to put specific content into the hands of children, usually sexual or political content, rather than trying to encourage children to expand their horizons more broadly. The bait and switch is vile. That's from Tom Darrow, a response to episode 183. You may also have a response. Send us to all those addresses I mentioned earlier. Uh, How do you read the word banned? Uh, What are the implications that you get to the pictures that that word puts into your head? And is that fair? Is that actually what people who have challenges or concerns about books are trying to do? Or is this maybe a false accusation? Spoiler alert, it often is a false accusation. As another commentator on my page said, in many nations, the Bible itself is banned. Uh, You actually had to have some missionaries go undercover and smuggle that book in there uh, for underground churches. So that is an actual banned book. Is it on the big banned book scary lists now? No. The Harry Potter books have found their challenge. Are those on the list now? Mm, No, they're kind of boring now. And a lot of people aren't happy about the author for some bad reasons. Uh, What about other books? Uh, Those types of books often aren't banned as often, except in other nations. But we aren't talking about them. We're only talking to the United States. I guess the United States is the center of the world and all these other actual banned books are just not a problem for us. That must be a nice luxury to have. If you're hearing the sarcasm, yes, you probably are. But all sarcasm aside, uh, let's talk about some scary stuff next on Fantastical Truth. Twelve men on a boat are besieged by a storm. Suddenly they see among the lightning a spectral shape. Another man looks out over a valley covered in skeletons, thousands of them, and he speaks an incantation. And every single figure raises to life to form a great army. These images do come directly from God's word, but these are likely not the most frightening accounts in the Bible. What then might be the scariest ghost story in scripture, and why did God include this narrative? 
Meanwhile, maybe you're not into horror. Maybe every time you talk about it, you skip this episode. Or maybe even as a non-fan, you listen to the end because you're a fan of the Problem of Evil and Theology. If so, well done. We hope he didn't scare you too much uh, with uh, some of these big words, some of which I'll have to look up after I'm done recording. But more so, I hope that you're scared for the right reason. Uh, Not just being scared for scariness's own sake, but being scared, as it were, more like what the scripture calls the fear of the Lord, uh, which God says is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, there is a good fear. There is a holy fear, but it leads us not to run screaming from God, but to run toward him away from the scariness of being separate from him. So let's keep doing that as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.